Welcome to the Education and Empowerment Podcast. In this show, our hosts explore success and advancement through education by interviewing today's top leaders in the fields of education, business, and technology in order to provide insight into what it really takes to succeed. This show is brought to you by Forstay, a SaaS-enabled online booking marketplace for student and intern housing. Forstay provides turnkey, all-in-one, cloud-based accommodation software solutions for colleges, universities, and organizations. Learn more at offcampus.forstay.com and landlords.forstay.com. All right, let's get into the show. You're tuned to Education and Empowerment Podcast. This is your host, Bakhtir Rasoyev, and today I'm coming to you with an interview of Anna Esaki-Smith. Anna Esaki-Smith is a global education expert, currently advising higher education institutions, private companies, and education organizations on international strategies and thought leadership. Anna specializes in market scoping, student decision-making analysis, recruitment, advising, and content development. Anna Saki-Smith is a Forbes contributor, writing about education trends, global issues, and the evolving workforce. Formerly, Anna was with UC Berkeley, British Councils, EF Education First, and has also lived and worked in Tokyo, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Paris, Berkeley, and New York. In this episode, Anna Saki-Smith and I will be discussing the recovery of higher education after pandemic. Talk about the challenges and the future of student success work in the US state colleges and universities. Discussion will also be around transforming higher education institution considering pandemia and whether or not there will be students with mental health issues. All right, let's get started. Good morning. This is Bakhtyar Soyev, and this is Education and Empowerment Podcast. I'm so excited to be speaking with Anna Esaki-Smith. It's a great pleasure to welcome her to our Education and Empowerment Podcast. Hi, good morning. Thanks very much for, for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Certainly. And the time is awesome because uh, so much is happening in higher education. And as they say in the business, it's it's always good to be thinking, you know, outside of the box. And, you know, sometimes people are in the business versus being, you know, on the business. And I think, you know, one great avenue and uh, reason why, you know, I'm so excited to be speaking with you today is that, you know, not only you've been in the field, but you are now working with so many institutions. And I'm so much looking forward to the insights that you're providing today. Yeah, I I have to agree that your this podcast is quite timely. I mean, we've really has come through an unprecedented year of just enormous disruption to the industry. And now that there are vaccine rollouts going on around the country, that countries are opening up their economies and their universities for face-to-face learning, we're able to get a little bit of a, a period to look back and assess what's happened in this past year. Not exactly with the knowledge that we know exactly what's going to happen in the next year, But uh, there is a respite from the, I think this past year has been a lot of just reacting uh, rather than planning because it took so many twists and turns. So, and people can see that with challenges that come opportunities, hopefully will be the outcome for the sector in the months and years to come. That's amazing. And I agree with you. It's it's all about, you know, that self-reflection and and self-auditing. Just for the beginners, uh, do you mind telling us how you got started? 
Well, I was originally trained as a journalist. I was a reporter for Reuters and I worked for them in Tokyo covering the markets, so stock exchange, stock market, uh, foreign exchange, et cetera. And then I, in the process, I learned how to work very quickly because you're, you have to be accountable and accurate in a very short period of time. I then moved to New York and then I got a job working for Newsweek, both in Hong Kong. And then also I opened their bureau in Shanghai. It was the first accredited Newsweek correspondent based in Shanghai. And that was when the economy was opening up and China was sort of peering into the into the future of the great powerhouse economy that it will be today. But I did veer into education, maybe veer is a wrong word, but I did pivot into education. I would say probably about a dozen years ago, I did a global communications for a large private education company called EF Education First. And they do a lot of online education. They had a internet business school, Halt Business School, which was really ahead of its time, multi-campus, international. They offered a one-year MBA, et cetera. So there was a lot of innovation going on. And then the bulk of my career overseas in education was with the British Council, which is one of the premier international education organizations in the world. And they promoted, traditionally, they encouraged students to study to the UK, but I developed and launched an international uh, research service and managed a team. And we provided data and intelligence primarily to the UK sector, but also we provided some consultancies to international universities about how basically to be international, whether it be recruit international students, do joint programs, transnational education. And we specialized in student decision-making, which is what are the factors that drive Chinese students to study towards a country versus American students versus students from France. They're all very different, even though they're all lumped into the international student sort of cohort. And then I moved, I've been overseas for over 20 years. I moved to California, I was I led on international student recruitment for non-degree programs for UC Berkeley, one of the premier public inst- universities in the world. And about two years ago, I did launch Education Rethink, which is a consultancy providing data intelligence to universities on international sort of student recruitment, international strategies, as well as content. You probably know through this podcast that content is king now about how you your messaging and how you approach different audiences. So that's all under the umbrella of Education Rethink, which I I run now with a former colleague of mine from the British Council. That's great. Uh, One of the things we're exploring in this podcast is the whole notion of student success. And there's a lot of discussion into what, like, what does student success even mean? Who determines student success? What's the definition of students? And I know that through your work overseas, both in the States, you've been on both ends. You've been, you know, working with the students, bringing them in here. You've been on, you know, institutional side. And I was wondering if, if you could maybe share briefly what, what is student success from, you know, students' perspective or from the institutional perspective? You know, that's such a great question. It's such a deeply profound question, I think, that everybody is talking about right now. Because in the end, the success of the sector recovering from the pandemic, that question is answered appropriately. And, and as you mentioned, because what's successful for you and for me are going to be quite different. So for a young person, 18 years old, just starting out in the world, I mean, you can't, no one can say that there is a uniform definition for success. I personally, just from my experience, think that, I mean, this is sort of a general thing also to say, but that the outcomes are what the student want or aspire towards. So I think what students need to do is 
rather than to just go to the United States because they want to go to a fancy elite university, they want to go to Japan because they want to study, they love manga and sushi. I think that they need to articulate to themselves before they actually go to university what those outcomes might be. Maybe it is to become a, a great manga artist and to learn those skills. Maybe it's they want to get a job working for an investment bank. Maybe right. they want to come back home and, and run their family business. So right. I think that the outcomes, if students are articulate to themselves those outcomes, and then they get the support they need to figure out what the best institution is for that financially, academically, geographically, then the success that you talk about can be achieved. I think right now, brand has been king. I know right. the applications to Ivy Leagues have been through the roof. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One of them being that this it's become standardized test optional for this cycle. But I think the success piece is about articulating what it is that you want rather than just sort of going, I want to go to university because my my parents want me to, or that's what everybody else is doing or something like that. Right. No, that's amazing. And I think this year, what's happening with the whole pandemic and mergers and acquisitions and institutions uh, trying to innovate, th there is so much room to actually determine what those outcomes are. And I'm interested in uh, learning what are you noticing? What are you observing these days as it comes to the work of these institutions? And how are they preparing for helping students articulate or actually like match what they wanting to do? Yeah, you know, right now, there are universities that are reacting to what's been happening. But I would say sort of in a, a negative way, you know, there are some universities that are cutting back on their academic programs, they're, they've laid off faculty, Ithaca College is one that has recently laid off a large number of their faculty and programs, I think, in music, and some in teaching, because they're sort of projecting into the future, like, are these viable Program. So to some degree, the options for students right now are narrowing, ironically, despite the fact that the premium should be put on addressing their needs. Community colleges, I'm sure you've read too, despite the fact that the elite universities are getting huge numbers of applications, the community colleges are getting huge drops in applications because low-income students, their financial resources have been severely depleted. The, the landscape is, is a bit skewed. Probably the top, I would say, 15 to 20 universities in the United States, so talking in Ivy League, MIT, Stanford, NYU, et cetera, USC, are getting huge applications, and right here are their suffering. So those colleges are adjusting in a way that may give them fewer options to give to students, but they want to be more efficient, more streamlined for the next global crisis that might come, or just to survive the next five years where they're kind of having to realize their losses. But with regards to specifically to your question about articulation. I think students, it's, it's kind of a strange demand to make because they're quite young, but I think they need to think because it's very hard to, to, to understand the brain of a young person. Right. <laughs> and I, and their, and their parents, I think are maybe too biased about what they want there. You know, I want you to be a doctor because it's, you're going to make good money and it's secure. I think the students need to sort of articulate whether it be to talk more with their friends, their guidance counselors. I've run focus groups with young with students about what they want to do. And I'm amazed a lot of them know what they want to do. I think they there's just a bit of a barrier between talking to me, I'm just sort of a neutral observer mm. versus somebody like a mom or dad who's going to pay tuition, their guidance counselors, and having all of their thoughts reflected in their essays, those colleges. And, and just one last thing too, the articulation. I think students, it would probably behoove students to not get so bogged down by brand that to go to a university that isn't as famous as the ones that you and I know by, you know, 
off the top of your head. That could give them great value to go to a university that maybe is less academically renowned, but does address their needs. The cohort size is is good for them. They feel comfortable on that campus. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that has to come more from the students themselves, I think. Right. What I noticed as well is that with the whole unprecedented times, there are new innovative companies and solutions emerging to help pathways. I've read a lot about different pathway and language schools merging or being acquired because this is what actually helps those young people to articulate what they want because you know, how do I know what I want, right? Until you get the insights, until you get specific like suggestions or discover what your strengths are and where the industry is going and what's going to matter to the community that you're in. And I agree with you. I mean, many students, especially overseas, they are driven by what mom and dad say, you know, oh, I want to be a lawyer or, I, you know, my uncle was a doctor and I'm going to be a, a doctor and I'm going to own a clinic and such. But the emphasis should be on what your strengths are. I mean, if you don't have aspirations, then you're going to end up, you know, just doing what your uncle wanted, I guess. In the end, that you'll end up doing something that maybe you didn't want to do, but you had the opportunity to maybe explore something that you really wanted to do. And with regards to what you mentioned about tech, I think, yes, students have more information than ever at their fingertips. The amount of information on Google, the free information that you can get on applications and tests and the university campus life and the YouTube videos, you have students from around the world, uploading videos of life, you know, life in Dublin and when I go to school in Ireland. And they really can be pretty informed pretty easily on what's available out there. Obviously, big difference between, you know, on your laptop and then taking a plane or going somewhere and starting your life. But but I agree with you. I think that this these students have many, many resources other than just their counselor in high school or, or their parents or their family members. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, let's shift gears here a little bit. We're talking about students, but we also need to talk about, you know, the the higher education institutions. And I want to expand on the whole notion of being informed and getting insight and using research. Can you tell us more about the work that you do at Education Rethink and how you're helping solve some of these challenges with higher education institutions in the States? Yeah, you know, I think for a while, higher ed, let me just use the United States for an example. I think when international students started going overseas, and I think that most of it started out of East Asia, that the United States offered courses that were not offered to students, let's say, in Japan or in China. So they went to get their education. And a lot of it was scholarship based. A lot of it was in the sciences. And so that's why if you go to Japan or China, other countries in, in Asia, a lot of the senior faculty are all educated overseas. And that's a reflection back that back then they could not get their PhDs in physics or whatever it was in country. And then because of the, the growing middle class in, let's, let's just talk, focus on Asia, it, it became more self-funded. There are more self-funded students from overseas. And when you're using your own money to fund overseas education, you end up being more selective because I'm not saying that if you have a scholarship, but you're, you're not being selective, but often I think those are targeted right. for specific institutions. So if you have millions of students coming into the United States, I think there's just over a million international students and a larger percentage of them are self-funded. You need to earn that versus that student deciding, oh, I'm going to go to the UK because they offer X my research is to help inform universities about what those factors are. When they do their outreach to students, it's more specific, it's tailored. Do you offer internships? 
Do you help with job placement? What is your engineering program ranked? So all of those, when we talk a little bit about the outcomes that you and I just discussed earlier, they need to be more cognizant of what the students need rather than just being like, oh, we're the United States. Students like the United States. And to a degree, there's interest because of Hollywood and all, you know, the, the tech, Silicon Valley, et cetera. There's a lot of embedded interest in the United States. But if you're going to spend $70,000 a year all in to go to Columbia, they, students need to have universities need to outreach to students in different countries in specific ways. So at Education Rethink, we help with regards to strategy, how to do outreach, what what countries would make good recruitment markets for a university based on their programs, helping with content because the messaging is very different for international students versus domestic students. I'm astonished when I look at university websites and the for domestic students, there's a lot of information. And then for international students, <laughs> it's not language. It's that the information and they use a lot of jargon that international students don't understand. So anyway, I help with those types of targeted outreach because it's gotten so competitive now with Australia, Canada, New Zealand, even China. China's, you know, attracting hundreds of thousands of international students. So it's just my work is a reflection of how competitive the market has become in terms of getting, attracting international students to institutions and then to countries. Right. This is great that you mentioned that because what would be interesting to explore is and talking to higher education leaders who are working in the field or in the institution, their definition of the challenges they're facing is different. And I'd like to hear your perspective about what would you say are the major obstacles and problems or challenges do you see working these institutions? Let's take United States, for example. Yeah. Oh, well, I would say the biggest challenges for the universities in the United States, and I would just cast it in terms of the pandemic, is their dependence on, well, the initial shock for everyone was their dependence on sort of the auxiliary revenue that I don't think people were aware of how much they depended on meal plans, on dorm fees, and that tuition was very expensive. But the the amount of money that these institutions lost because the students were all sent back home, I think it was in March of last year, that they suffered huge losses, hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars as a result of that. So number one, I don't know how they're going to mitigate that or how to mitigate the risk of that happening again in the future. That's the first issue. The second one is just general tuition revenue. I think, Mm -hmm. I I don't know how they're going to, this next fall will be quite interesting to see how universities open up. Cornell, Rutgers, a few other universities have announced they're going to require vaccinations for their students to come onto campus. And so they're doing sort of a, a, delicate balancing act here, that safety or that precaution. They also have staff, older staff who may not be comfortable doing face-to-face. So there may still be an online component. The social distancing that they will continue to need to, I don't think things are going to be so relaxed by August that we're going to have crammed lecture halls so quickly. But then also to make up the tuition revenue that was lost Not only international students not being able to come, but there were drops in enrollments of domestic students who couldn't come or they deferred. A lot of students deferred their freshman year because they didn't want it to be, they just stayed at home or they did something else. So there are a lot of outstanding issues that have yet to be resolved between April now and they're planning, I'm sure, feverishly now for the fall semester. And whether or not they're going to open full stop, like will it be a completely open campus? I think some universities have already announced they'll they'll be open. So they're just a lot. And then the international students too, they're, 
their vaccine rollouts have been very spotty across around the world. So how are, can you require a student to be vaccinated if they can't get the vaccine in, in their home country? So I'm sure there are many smart people discussing all these issues, but, but I have to say one last thing that's not pandemic related, but there's a lot going on. You know, before the pandemic, generally enrollments in higher education were decreasing in the United States domestically right. because I think people just opted to work rather than go to university or they couldn't afford it. And I think higher ed overall needs to be more closely aligned with the workplace. So to give students skills that they know when they graduate, they will have a job. And I think higher ed notoriously is very slow. There are many reasons for that too. They can't adjust. And I think what you're talking about in the beginning about tech, there are a lot of companies now, Google's one coming out with certificate programs that are very closely aligned to what the workplace needs. Google knows what the workplace needs, what Google needs. So I think that there's going to be a lot of competition between higher ed and the role that it's supposed to play and private industry. Obviously, higher ed can give students a lot of things that Google cannot, for example, an on-campus experience, peer groups, you know, talking in the hallway with your buddies about the meaning of life. Google, Google cannot replicate that. And there's a lot of growth through those sort of in- intangibles. In this, for the past the pandemic, that will be the biggest question is how to get a job and what's the best way to prepare yourself for the workplace. That's amazing. You made, you know, certainly great insights. I mean, employability, alignment with, you know, what the job market wants. Would you consider students like mental health being an issue as well at institutions? And if yes, you know, what do you see now that uh, could be resolved? Yeah, wow. That's such an important question. And I think the stress, I felt stressed out during this pandemic. And I, I have, I have my whole adult life's worth of experiences to support me. I mean, I have a lot of tools that I, I use in my life because I've had experiences. Right. But for an 18-year-old, even younger, we're talking kids who are in primary school, et cetera, at home, they don't have enough life experiences to fall back on. And I was stressed out. This is what I did. I meditated or I, I drank two cups of two pots of coffee or I'm, I'm sort of joking, but you and I have those coping mechanisms. True. But I think for young people, they, they don't have that. So it's all new and it's happening while they're in the process of developing those skills. So yes, there's research that indicates, yeah, that these students, I'm talking about higher education, are have experienced depression, anxiety. Understandably, the environment they were operating in was very difficult. And at the same time, they're doing online classes, they're, they're Zoomed out, they're taking tests, they're, you know, they're dealing with AP, doing AP tests online all kinds of the stresses of regular of a regular university student compounded by all of those stresses compounded by fears that their parents might get COVID, their parents, their grandparents might get COVID, you know, so this is all they're missing there. And also on, on another level, they're missing the graduation. They're at the high school level. They didn't get a prom. So social, social rituals have been obliterated. The stress remains and they have all these sort of familial family issues. And also obviously if your parents lose their jobs, et cetera. So to be honest with you, I think there is research that is indicating that yes, students, a large number of students are suffering What the long-term implications, however, are big unknown. I mean, it will roll out, but the impact of the pandemic on institutions will take a long time to fully realize it could take, could take decades but on young people and how they develop, that's the big unknown. I, I, I feel, I feel, I really feel for these young people. 
And I'm talking about students who have enough financial resources to go to university. Right. A lot of them who are unable to, they don't have Wi-Fi, they don't have laptops, they don't, their parents are looking for work. It's, it, it, this, the past year, I'm sure has been absolutely, to putting it mildly, just a tremendous challenge. Yeah. That, that's amazing. Now, as, as someone who, who's been in the field, you know, for a long enough time and been on the different angles of you know, international higher education and considering that the market is somewhat coming back, I mean, obviously there is some good news, traveling will be resuming and vaccines are somewhat on the way and colleges, you know, opening back up like one, one, one at a time. What suggestions uh, would you make to our listeners who are college administrators or people working with international departments or marketing folks working in higher education institutions? What do you see the future of higher education and what are some of the things that uh, can be done? Well, it's interesting that mobility, to be in international higher education or higher education in any way with mobility ground to a standstill is sort of, I mean, it's almost like the airline industry. It's sort of the absolute worst thing that could possibly happen uh, is that you can't go anywhere. So I think in higher ed, it has helped drive certain trends that were already percolating. For example, the drive to online education, we were obviously forced to do so. Whether or not the universities will make the, the investments to provide quality experience for students, I think that is the big question. There are a number mm-hmm. of big, big universities that have already had online I mean, programs that were fully realized prior to the pandemic. I mean, I think those universities will will thrive in that way because they they that's their wheelhouse. But I think that the universities that had a pivot, mm-hmm. let's let's see what whether or not they will develop those because in the in the event of another pandemic or another crisis that closes these campuses down, there's nobody has an excuse for a YouTube video being a, their professor's lecture. Right. Um, so I think that's that's number one. I think number two. A lot of universities for international recruitment, and I'm very familiar with this, you spend a lot of money on the face-to-face. You fly people from the home campus back and forth. And I think that face-to-face is very important, maybe in terms of, quote-unquote, kind of closing the deal, like you come to a certain right. country. I, I care about you to have traveled thousands of miles to speak to you. But then again, the, the amount of money that you spend on that, that can be maybe used in other ways, maybe that could be used for more scholarships. Also, climate change, the carbon footprint of for international recruitment is just huge. I don't even know if it's ever really been quantified. Right. And then the collaboration that, that faculty do in terms of international traveling, I mean, I think there's a bit of that face-to-face that has to be done. But from what I can understand from the people I speak with, a lot, maybe even more was done online because they, they had to. So there was a right. lot more of what you and I are doing right now. And that wouldn't have been done had people just been getting on planes because that was just sort of like, it ain't broke. Let's keep doing. I think some of that is being rethought and perhaps dialed back to save money because that actually it's also the loss of productivity, you're jet lagged, you're tired. That there are efficiencies to be to be considered when you're looking at what your strategy will be once, as you mentioned, flights go back. It, it's not going to be like, okay, you know, back to 2019. Mm-hmm. I think it will be a very, at least for the institutions who are looking on the long, long term, it will be a streamlined approach to how to do international in all those ways. I think the most important component though, however, is to make sure that they have an online provision that will be quality, that students won't be like, oh, here we go again. Or, you know, why am I paying so much money for a substandard education kind of discussion? So I think people want to avoid that. 
That's great. Recovery of higher education is, is something that's very you know, uh, important. And I think relating back to your earlier point about institutions realizing the tuition revenue and the auxiliary services revenue, what suggestions would you give to people working on those specific task forces, uh, so to speak? Would you say that technology is important, innovation is important? What's important for them to consider to to somewhat bring back that you know revenue, whether that be through auxiliary services or through tuition revenue or other types of revenue streams? Yeah, that is that's the question. Like that's the ultimate question, isn't it? And I think I, I've thought about that, and I, I think in the end, and again, it's a difficult situation because what's this? What students want, as we talked about earlier, is so different. But I think if the universities are able, if it's a combination of online tech, on-campus housing, organic salad bar, whatever it is that they, if in the end they give students what they want, price point that they, that the students are like, okay, that was money well spent because I was able to do X when I graduated, then they're doing the right thing. Because I think what Harvard University is, what, what the ideal experience for a student there is very different from a student that, for example, goes to the New Jersey Institute of Technology. So I think as long as the universities are able to, 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 to put together that experience. And maybe it, it, it means that you don't have these fancy new dorms that will cost each student X amount more money per year. Maybe the students would be happier living in an older dorm that's cheaper. Maybe maybe they don't need the, the sports thing. I mean, that's a whole nother issue. I, during the pandemic, I think Stanford actually eliminated, if I'm not mistaken, 11 of their varsity sports. I mean, the, maybe those types of moves will benefit the students because they're, the fee that they pay for those campus activities will be less. And, and the, the university spends mo- less money on coaches and facilities and stuff like that. Because the, camp, the, the ideal campus student experience is so different based on students, on institution, I think it's up to the university or the institution to figure out what that is. Like, what do they do best? And make sure that the students get that when they graduate. I think it's to for your institutions to know what they do best and not try to be be all end all for everybody on the institution side and on the student side to know what they want and to pick the institutions that they feel can give that to them. It's a two-pronged kind of approach, I think. And if those things align, then great, like everybody's happy. But right now, I don't think the alignment is there. I don't think, and then you add that tech layer the layer that you need, the employability layer that students need to and to be marketable job-wise. And those skills are changing almost every day. Is it po- complex problem solving? Is it you have to know how to code? Is it teamwork, creativity? All those things seem to vary depending on what day of the week it is. I right. feel, I mean, AI and machine learning suddenly exploded Boom. and that's sort of the, the main focus versus what you know, what made it might have been considered innovative even like two or three years ago. I do want to confirm what you said with higher education's embracing technology. That's what we're seeing at Force Day as well, working through so many different colleges, universities nationwide in North America and Europe. Many of the leaders are confirming that we don't, instead of having that dorm, we're going to invest that resources into someone who's already doing it. And we still benefit, our still students still benefit, and we don't have to spend like millions and millions of dollars on, you know, putting together a new dorm or, or, or something fancy to, so to speak, to attract the students. It's about like really, as you said, sort of like relating back to your earlier point about 
identifying what outcomes do those students want like what what is the institutional purpose and what do we do best and let's really stay focused on that rather than fight and uh, go compete with each institution about who has the best dorm well that's you know it, because in the end what the university is supposed to do is deliver education i don't mean to be facetious but they're not supposed to be a landlord and maybe historically for me obviously with the campus experience that's been part of their that's become part of the administration of a university. But it, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea then for universities to embrace a little bit more of that ethos that to, if financially it makes sense and in the end the student benefits right, and the faculty are happier, that you, you kind of embed bits like that, as you mentioned, so that it makes it for a more efficient economical, and if it's more efficient, it ends up being more economical outcome for, for students. I think in the end, it is about the students, the customer. So exactly. pretty easy to figure figure out whether or not something's working. And as we wrap up this episode, I was hoping that you could tell us where higher education professionals can channel their energy. You know, what opportunities do you see that they should take advantage of and, you know, for students as well? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, as I said earlier, it's been a year of unprecedented challenges. And I think a lot of people in the higher ed are exhausted. Right. But once everybody gets vaccinated and feels a little bit more relaxed about about the situation. There's a lot of opportunity now. Whenever an industry is disrupted, there's opportunity because, for example, obviously things did not go smoothly. There were problems. We talked about the online, about the the revenue lost. So I, I think for a higher educational professional, look at their institutions and where can they maybe get more involved in the online delivery of their programs. I think any any faculty, no matter what age, if they can teach well online, I think that's like uh, the golden ticket. If you can mm-hmm. teach well in person, but also online, I think that that opens up opportunities for that individual and it also benefits their students. So I think that's the first thing. And I'm not saying it, I, I know how difficult that is. I'm not saying it like, just go, just go and learn how to, but I, I think to get involved in the online space, I think internationally, I speak to co- my, my colleagues overseas in Myanmar, uh, Vietnam. There, there are countries that are openly going to embrace online education because it's it's cheaper. That you can you can reach more people. What access to the internet is is a challenge, but the governments are working on that. There are all kinds of demands for for people that can teach effectively online, and it's it's to be engaging and to make students excited and inspired. So that's number one. I think number two, I don't think it hurts so much for universities to be a little bit more attuned to what the market is saying. And if you teach a certain course that you feel is so divorced from, let's say, liberal studies or humanities, that you feel is so divorced from the marketplace, it's just like, I teach literature. But maybe when you have these students who are going to graduate in four years and are going to go into a very difficult jobs market, maybe think a little bit about how you can transform the the skills that they're learning in that classroom. There are a lot of skills they're learning, analytical, comparative, communicative, to how is that going to maybe articulate to them how that can be used professionally. Students are, are just learning, but I don't think they look beyond what they're memorizing for a test or have to say in a classroom. But if a professor who they admire tells them these skills that we're learning, you know, these certain professions, they need people that are like that. You know, maybe you can look into this class or you're very good at this, which might be good for you to become an, an attorney or a diplomat or a communications professional. So I think that that there's a gap there, I think. And I think faculty 
it would make them more relevant to the each generation of students that comes through their classrooms to translate for them what and if they don't know they should know they should do a little research about what the jobs market is like and because for stem computer science is kind of a no-brainer right they kind of know the direction they're going to but for Mm -hmm. people studying history comparative literature english and i kudos to them the world needs more liberal arts study students who study liberal studies but they don't i think they need to know what those strengths are that they're the skills they're developing as a result of that that's fantastic that's so true i i agree with you that's Certainly very empowering here. Do you have any words of wisdom or a quote about a student's success that you like to leave us with? Well, the one thing I like to tell the students is because of the varsity blues scandal, when obviously everybody's parents went to great great legal lengths to get their kids into all kinds of universities. And I think these overwhelming admissions stats that we're reading, record high levels of applications to Harvard and to Columbia and that Harvard is taken like a, I think it's a 3.4% of the students is a record low. So for a young person today, you just be like, oh my, oh my goodness, like this is just, the system's overwhelming. And I agree, it completely is. But my words of wisdom are, you just need to take your power back and not just be like, I just can't even, it's, it is, it's quite intimidating. But if you articulate what you want, you do some research reach out to people. People always want to help young people, whether it be teachers at your school, contact a professor at a university that you want to go to, talk to your guidance counselor, ask your parents for contacts, figure out what it is that you want to do, and you will get the outcome that you want. You just have to be a little bit less intimidated, which is difficult to do. My last is take your power back. That's very very powerful. I'm sure the listeners will be interested in contacting you perhaps to get your insight about transforming their institutions and perhaps, you know, for students to, you know, learn more about what you do. What's the best way to find you? Well, I can be reached uh, on my, well, the website is www.education-rethink.com. And then I'm at Anna at education-rethink.com. So if you just Google education rethink, it pops up quite high. So I welcome any queries, just want to talk or discuss any challenges that you might be facing. I also write for Forbes. And so you can read my, my articles there. I cover mostly domestic higher education with Forbes. That's amazing. That's good to hear. And thank you so much. On behalf of Education Empowerment Podcast and Four State Team, we appreciate your time and insights. I personally found them very useful, and I hope that uh, so will our listeners. And for all the listeners out there, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on podcast.fourstay.com so you never miss an episode. And, you know, if you're curious about what Forstay does and the services we provide to higher education institutions, check us out at about.forstay.com or podcast.forstay.com. Until our next episode, Anna, this was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Education and Empowerment Podcast. This show is brought to you by Forstay, a SaaS-enabled online booking marketplace for student and intern housing. Forstay provides turnkey, all-in-one, cloud-based accommodation software solutions for colleges, universities, and organizations. Learn more at offcampus.forstay.com and landlords.forstay.com.